The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading to verse 21 this evening. This is a very short portion of God's word, and in many ways it's simple. But I think it's also a beautiful story which instructs us on a powerful truth about the radical call that Jesus has upon our lives. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 19, the word of the Lord. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening is taken from Paul's first letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 21 this evening. The word of our God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. 
Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 19, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Jesus Christ places extraordinary, extraordinary burdens, extraordinary demands upon everyone who will be his disciple. For example, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now we have to remind ourselves that the cross is not simply a symbol of a burden in the ancient world. Rather, it was an instrument for execution, one of the most brutal forms of execution ever devised by men. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer would later put it, when Jesus Christ bids a man to come and follow him, he bids him to come and die. Now, if we could get that death over with quickly enough, preferably on a stage where everyone could see us and admire what extraordinary disciples we are, perhaps we could even manage that and pull it off. But Jesus calls us to follow him in the daily nitty-gritty of life. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, Jesus does not call all of us. In fact, he calls hardly any of us in the way that he called the rich young ruler. Most of us do not need to sell everything we have and give it to the poor in order to follow Jesus. That was a distinct call for a distinct man. And yet Jesus does call us to hold all the things he has given us loosely and to prioritize him. Yes, it is true that Jesus wants most of us to keep on being engineers and lawyers, accountants and social workers, therapists and salesmen. These are all good and honorable works, honorable vocations, for Christians to engage in. Nevertheless, we need to hold all of these things loosely. In principle, we should be ready at any moment to drop anything to follow Jesus into a new call if we understand that is his will. Tonight we come to a radical example of a man of God who does this very thing. Elisha was part of the godly remnant. Now, remember, this is a terrible time in Israel. The majority of people are at best wishy-washy, and many of them have actually gone over to Baal worship. Not Elisha. He is part of the godly remnant. He clearly knew who Elijah was, and he held him in the highest possible esteem. Then one morning, Elisha goes out into the fields, and um, he, he's the son of a very, very wealthy landowner. And he goes out with just basic, simple plans, nothing more than I'm going to supervise the workers today, and I'm going to engage in that same demanding physical work myself. And then in a moment, little more than a twinkling of an eye, his entire life is changed. At least that's one way of seeing it. 
There is another way of seeing it, and that is Elisha's life only changed in terms of his circumstances. He was completely devoted to the Lord before Elijah shows up, and because he's devoted to the Lord, when the Lord makes clear his new plan for Elisha's life, Elijah cha Elisha changes what he's going to do. But the most important thing about him, his devotion to the Lord, remains exactly the same. Uh, that's the way we ought to think of our own lives as well. The central thing in our life ought to be our relationship with Jesus Christ, and that should always remain the same. We're going to look at tonight's passage under four main headings, all of which describe Elisha. First, Elisha was a man of privilege. Second, Elisha was a family man. Third, Elisha was devoted to the Lord. And fourth, Elisha was a servant. Let me give those to you once again. First, Elisha was a man of privilege. Second, Elisha was a family man. Third, Elisha was devoted to the Lord. And fourth, Elisha was a servant. We begin the fact that Elisha was a privileged man. Look at verse 19 with me. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now, if you're driving through Iowa and you come upon a small farm and you see a middle-aged farmer out there riding on a tractor in the field, your first thought, and it's almost certainly going to be accurate, is there is a hard-working farmer pouring everything he has into the land simply to provide for his family. But if you drive a bit further on and you see a massive farm and you see a dozen or more people out in the field driving a dozen or more large pieces of farm equipment, you're going to think, if this farm belongs to a single family, that family is pretty well off financially. In fact, they're borderline rich. That's the sort of farm that Elijah came to when he came looking for Elisha. Elisha is driving a yoke of oxen, that's two oxen, in a plow, but he's the 12th yoke. He's got 11 yoke with 11 servants in front of him, or perhaps hired workers, but probably servants, and he is supervising those workers in their task. That is, Elisha comes from a wealthy family. He is a son of significant privilege. Here's why that's important. Uh, sometimes people will run off to the military or, or to the ministry, particularly in the Middle Ages. People might try to run off to a monastery and so on, simply to escape the very hard, mundane life they already had. But that is not Elisha. Elisha had a good life. He had a life with real means. He had a life with prestige. And presumably, when his mother and father go home to be with the Lord, he's going to inherit all of this land. We might not think of ourselves as being as well off as Elisha, and perhaps on a relative scale, as you compare yourself to your neighbors, you're not. But the truth is, 
Pretty much everyone here tonight has a pretty comfortable life, or at least you can look forward a few years and see how it's going to become a pretty comfortable life. Uh, God has blessed us with material abundance, with technological wonders, with extraordinary health care, and in ways that we increasingly take for granted, things that make us among the richest people in the entire history of the world. This means that we should, con we should pause to consider whether we have wealth or whether our wealth has us. Are we only willing to serve the Lord if that comes with at least a 1,500-square-foot house that has central heat and air? That's a fair question for us to ask ourselves. Um, see if this resonates with you. In my experience, when I talk to young people, and I know this is true of myself when I was young, 9, 10, and 11-year-olds, when they think about the future, they think primarily in terms of what they're going to do and what they're going to be. I want to be a fireman, I want to be an astronaut, and so on. And then as they grow a little bit older, they discover that in order to do what they want to do, they have to earn money. Uh, that can be a very discouraging point for some young people to have to learn that lesson. But here's the trick. As we start to earn money, we discover that it not only facilitates us doing what we wanted to do, it also allows us to buy things, comforts, amusements, experiences, experiences we enjoy. And over time, most of us start thinking, I need to keep having those experiences and those things, so I only really consider the options in my life that allow me to keep enjoying in a growing amount, or at least the same amount, of material abundance. Turns out that it's easier to get caught up in the net that affluence casts than we might want to admit. Now, if we place tonight's passage in the broader context of all of Scripture, because tonight's passage doesn't teach us very much, but in the broader context of all of Scripture, I think Jesus is telling us two things. First of all, if you have wealth, if you have affluence, even if you're simply a middle-class American level of affluence, don't feel guilty about it. Enjoy those things. Receive them as gifts from my hand. Yes, you ought to give generously to the work of the kingdom of God and give to you those in need, by all means. But you also ought to enjoy these things as my blessings in your life. Don't feel guilty. I delight to bless you, and I want you to enjoy your wealth. But second, hold all these things loosely. The only thing you need to cling to is me. What does enjoying material gifts while holding them loosely look like? We'll take a look at Elisha in tonight's passage. Elijah simply walks by and he throws his cloak over Elisha's shoulders. He doesn't even say anything to Elisha. Yet Elisha grasps what is going on. He drops everything and he runs after Elijah. He, he, his life has been changed like that. He knows that Elijah is calling him that God is calling him through Elijah to follow in Elijah's steps. John Woodhouse puts it like this. The cloak that had covered Elijah's face as he encountered the Lord on Mount Horeb was now thrown onto the unsuspecting farm boy. 
No word was spoken. Elijah just kept on walking. Remarkably, Elisha knows exactly what this means. God is calling him to follow Elijah and ultimately to follow in his footsteps. Immediately we discover that while Elisha enjoyed great privilege, his privileges and comforts did not possess him. He held them loosely in his hands. Verse 20. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? As soon as Elijah throws his cloak upon him, Elisha is prepared to leave everything behind and to lead a radically new way of life. Uh, this reminds me, that is, Elisha reminds me, of uh, Calvin's coat of arms. That was sort of a thing at the time of the Reformation. People took up Latin names, and people that were prominent would have their own coats of arms. Calvin's coat of arms was a heart in outstretched hands, and the words he put on that coat were promptly and sincerely in the service of the Lord. That's what Calvin wanted for his own life. That is obviously what is true of Elisha in his. His heart was offered up promptly and sincerely in the work of the Lord. Now you might be wondering just how committed Elisha was. After all, doesn't he ask Elijah for permission to go back and kiss his mother and father? Uh, this has become particularly uh, problematic based on an interpretation of a passage in the New Testament. The passages are superficially so similar that every commentary I've ever looked at compares them. That is, when a man comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, but the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. Now, doesn't that give you a pause about Elisha here, but he's kind of divided between following the Lord and his commitment to his own parents? Well, because that is dealt with at such length and because there is a superficial similarity, I want to deal with the gospel passage in just a little bit of depth. Uh, we talked about it, I believe, early this summer, so some of you will remember this, uh, this particular passage. At first blush, our Lord's words might seem entirely unreasonable, telling a man who wants to bury his father, let the dead go and bury the dead. This man comes to Jesus with what appears to be a completely reasonable request. He is saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but please let me bury my father first. Now, honoring a de deceased parent is probably something that's true in every culture, but it was particularly important in Jewish culture. And furthermore, this man does uh, address Jesus as Lord. That seems rather promising. So what exactly is the problem? problem. Well, we need to start with a simple question. Is this man's father dead? Do you, do you understand the question? Is this man's father dead? And the answer is, no, he is not. See, in Jewish practice, a deceased person had to be buried within 24 hours. Um, if this man's father had just died, he wouldn't be out on the roadside talking with Jesus, right? 
See, what he's saying is not my father has just died, and as soon as I bury him, I will come and follow you. This is actually an idiom for saying, I will follow you after my father dies. I am not willing to prioritize the kingdom of God over my own relationship with my father and my mother. Of course, if you think about the context in the Gospels, it wouldn't have been surprising if his father would not have been at all happy with his son following this Galilean rabbi around instead of being about other business. Beloved, this is nothing at all like what Elisha was asking to do. Elisha loved his father and mother, and he simply wanted to demonstrate his affection for them before leaving them to go wherever the Lord might lead. Uh, once again, John Woodhouse puts it well. Elisha's willingness, even eagerness to follow Elijah, is remarkable. The request to kiss his parents goodbye emphasizes, rather than undermines, his readiness to leave his home for who knows what. He adds, the mention of kissing in this innocent context may remind us of the recent mention of every mouth that is not kissed Baal. That's what the Lord says to Elijah on Mount Sinai. This farm boy was among the faithful remnant that the Lord was keeping in Israel. Now, Elijah's response, like so much of the story, is actually a bit enigmatic. Um, it's open to more than one interpretation. Elijah gives permission for Elijah to re Elisha to return, uh, but his reason for doing so is perhaps a little bit puzzling. Elijah says, what have I done to you? Now, 1 Kings doesn't explain to us what Elijah meant. Um, a number of commentators have suggested something like this. Do not forget what I have just done, the significance of which you have indeed grasped. That's possible. But I want to offer a, a different explanation, or maybe they go together, I'm not sure. But I wonder if Elijah, knowing how painful serving the Lord has been for himself, but is serving him as a prophet, not his relationship directly with the Lord, you got to realize Elijah's had a really hard three and a half years. I wonder if he's reluctant to pressure Elisha into accepting this call. That is, Elijah wants Elisha to understand this call comes not from Elijah, but from God, and he wants Elisha to accept it of his own free will, not because he thinks or feels that Elijah is pressing him to accept it. I think that's uh, at least part of the answer. We also see something that is at least worth mentioning. While Jesus makes some shocking demands about the necessity of our loyalty to him, trumping our loyalty to our family members, uh, we shouldn't hit that so often that we forget that ordinarily it is perfectly fine for a person to love the Lord and love his family and have good family relationships. Um, we shouldn't think that following the Lord always means that there's going to be stress between the disciple and his or her parents or his or her children. And here, undoubtedly, Elisha's parents are probably the ones who brought him up in the faith. Elisha was a privileged man, 
And Elisha was a family man, but the most important thing about Elisha is that he is devoted to the Lord. Look at verse 21 with me. And he, that is Elisha, returned from following Elijah and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. I wonder what Elijah was thinking as he gave Elisha permission to go back and kiss his parents. A number of commentators have suggested that Elijah may have felt a bit of reluctance about the call of Elisha. That is, he has been personally renewed on Mount Sinai, and by anointing Elisha, he's, he's making clear that his own time as Israel's chief prophet is coming to an end. And so he might have looked at this experience with a bit of sorrow or even reluctance. When Elijah looked at Elisha, was he saddened that his own days of being the chief prophet in Israel were quickly coming to an end? I want to say I think that's possible, but it's not very likely in my judgment. Uh, if you think back over the past three and a half years, the thing that strikes me about Elijah is how alone he was. I mean, the Lord sends him out to the brook Cherith all by himself. He's feeding him with ravens. And yes, he wasn't alone with the widow, but the widow is in Zarephath. That is, for a period of around three years, Elijah is sent outside the promised land to live with a Gentile widow. I think when Elijah now looks upon Elisha, he sees a young man. He sees a young man who still has things to learn. Some of those things he's going to learn from the older prophet. But he also sees a man who is devoted to the Lord. And for now, until the end of his life, Elijah will never be alone. And so I believe that he's looking upon Elisha with great affection and great hope for the future that they will have together. In any case, hearing Elijah's reply, Elisha turned back from the prophet, slaughtered the pair of oxen that he had been driving, made a fire with their equipment, and cooked the flesh of the oxen over the fire. And then he gave the prepared meal to the people, and they ate. You see what a clean break Elisha is making with his task? I realize that some of this is symbolic because he comes from a wealthy family. It's not like he couldn't come up with a, another pair of oxen. But, but Elisha is literally building, burning the equipment he was using to work in his old job. Not just oxen, which, by the way, produce an awful lot of barbecue. Uh, it's likely that they invited not simply the workers and family members, but basically the whole town to come and enjoy this celebration of this new call upon Elisha's life. But I think it's symbolic that he actually cooks them over the instruments for his previous line of work. Walter Meyer puts it like this, Elisha did not shrink back or protest the life-changing call from Yahweh, but accepted it in the humility and obedience of faith. He did this with unequivocal and absolute commitment. His being united with the Lord in faith, in gendered in him the willingness and gave him the power to give up circumstances of wealth and agrarian environment and enter into a much different way of life. 
Now, on the one hand, Elisha's call to be the next leading prophet in all of Israel is unique. Uh, God is not going to do that in your life. On the other hand, the devotion to the Lord that Elisha demonstrates through his actions is something that each and every one of us is called to emulate. The most basic call that Jesus has on your life is simply this. Come and follow me. Or as Jesus would say to Peter, uh, after his resurrection, when Peter is walking with him on the beach and he turns around and sees John, he says, Lord, what about this man? Do you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, look, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's true for each and every one of us. Jesus is saying, don't worry about everyone else. As for you, you follow me. How can we prepare to be as faithful as Elisha if faithfulness requires a radical change of our plans? You ready to be like Elisha? How do you do it? Well, that's simple. I didn't say it's easy, but it's simple. Hold everything you have now other than Jesus loosely and be devoted to Jesus right now in your present circumstances. Then if the Lord causes you to enter in an entirely different set of circumstances, you'll still actually have the same main thing in your life, which is your relationship with and your devotion to the Lord. We need to hold our plans and possessions loosely while clinging only to Jesus Christ, and we need to live lives that are devoted to the Lord in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, I should add, it's easier to make big changes in your life, even leaving behind big things, even leaving behind things you found security in, if the thing you're moving to seems really, really significant. Right? We all know that. It's just a very practical truth. But ask yourself this. How would Elisha have explained his change of plans to his friends, his wealthy friends, because that's usually how it works in terms of class, his friends from other large estates? How would he explain to him that he was giving up his prominent position, his position of influence, position of comfort, to go after Elijah? Well, that depends on what you think he's doing. See, before Elisha would step out into the limelight, he would simply be Elijah's assistant. By the world's standards, that's not impressive at all. Our passage ends by saying that Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, now that's correct. That is undoubtedly correct. That is a good translation. Yet it might be useful for you to know that more literally it says, and he served him. How do you explain to your friends that you give up prominence and prestige to serve Elijah? And later on, we're going to be told what that service looked like. Elisha is described as the man who poured water on Elijah's hands. How do you explain you're giving up a position of prestige and influence to wash another man's hands. Well, you might want to bring that up to date for them and ask what it would be like if someone left 
being a senior computer engineer, programmer, a successful venture capitalist, to go wash someone's hands. How could Elisha do that? I mean, that hardly seems like a step up. So how could Elisha step into this entirely new life with such confidence? Let me suggest two things. First, Elisha realized that faithfulness is success. That is, the reason why this step was so important to him, so valuable to him, is because he understood it was God's call on his life, and all he had to be concerned about was being as close to the center of God's will as he could possibly be. Now, that's a good word for us as well. We have to remind ourselves not to evaluate ourselves or allow ourselves to be evaluated by worldly standards. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ is success. And second, Elisha was seeking his praise not from men, but from God. And here's the point. It's a point for us. If you are seeking your praise from men, you will constantly be distracted from God's call upon your life. Because what God is calling to you, you to is not going to win the praise even of many of your Christian friends. Please note that it's not just on believers. Even many of your Christian friends and, and relatives are going to judge your choices by relatively worldly standards. The only way that you can follow Jesus with this sort of passion is if you are seeking your praise not from men, but from God. Well, now I want to take back just a little bit of what I said. Um, it's still true, but I want to qualify it just a little bit. It is true that this word that is translated assist here really means serve. But it's an unusual word that is used in a fairly limited number of contexts, and it describes a very particular type of service. It is the type of service that Joshua is said to provide for Moses. And I think that's the point that we ought to see here from that choice of wording in this text. The author of 1 Kings wants us to see that just as Joshua would succeed Moses, Elisha would succeed Elijah in his office. In fact, there's an interesting thing about their names which uh, also draws this connection. Uh, Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, while Elisha means my God is salvation. And this use of this specialized term for servant really does suggest that the author of 1 Kings wants us to see that Elisha will succeed Elijah just as Joshua succeeds Moses. And let it be said, God has chosen a worthy successor. So there you have it. Tonight's passage presents a short and simple story of a privileged young man devoted to the Lord who responds to the Lord's radical call in a dramatic and inspiring way. The story is simple, but to me at least, I trust to most of you, it is also beautiful. But if you step back and ask yourself who it's beautiful for, I think you'll discover it's only inspiring and beautiful to those who know Jesus Christ, the one who is placing this call upon Elisha's life. As I said just a moment ago, if you tried to explain exactly this story 
to your non-Christian friends, particularly if you bring it up to date and talk about people who have powerful, wealthy jobs in the modern world, they're all going to think at the very least, this guy's a bit of a fanatic who's going pretty far off the edge. And most people are going to think he's a bit crazy. And that shows us that what makes this story beautiful is not ultimately Elisha. It is the one who has called him. The beauty of this story ultimately comes not from the servant who responds, but from the Lord who calls him to serve. See, all of Christian ethics is ultimately simply our grateful response to God's prior grace to us in Jesus Christ. Think about what it means to leave everything behind and then hear these words from the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, this is the Jesus who is calling you to follow him. The only reason why you can leave everything with joy to follow Jesus is because he has already left everything for you. Amen.